I'd invite you to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. And I want to read verse 36 of the second chapter of the book of Acts. A, um, a guy who was noted or notorious for his long sermons was being introduced. And the introducer of the man who was long-winded said, Reverend Smith needs no introduction. And a man sitting out in the audience who was familiar with his reputation of preaching long sermons turned to a friend and said, that's right, he needs no introduction, he needs a conclusion. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the conclusion to this sermon. In fact, um, I'm going to work back from the conclusion. The conclusion to this sermon is verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when Peter made this statement, he made a bold, audacious statement. The word Lord there is a word that sometimes means owner, sometimes means master. Sometimes it means the captain of the ship. Sometimes Caesar, king in whom rests all authority. But in the New Testament, it had a special meaning, did the word kurios. For kurios in the New Testament is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the name or word for God himself. And so when Peter made this bold statement, he was saying two things. He was saying that Jesus is the incarnation of the invisible God. And he's saying that Jesus is the one in whom rests full authority. Now in our society, we make that statement. We say that all the time, Jesus is Lord. And it just, uh, you know, nobody bats an eye. It just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But you and I need to be reminded that when Peter made this statement, he was speaking to a largely hostile crowd. And most of the people there did not want to hear and they did not want to know that Jesus was Kurios, the one who was the incarnation of the invisible God and the one in whom rests full authority. For they were just seven days removed from the fact that this man, Peter calls Kurios, was crucified and died an ignominious death. And so to get up and make a statement at that time, in that place, such as this, took a lot of courage and required a tremendous amount of substantiation. In other words, they were sitting out there saying, okay, big guy, prove it. You make a statement like that. What evidence do you have to substantiate that? Now, what I want to ask you to do this morning is to be that crowd for me 
play the devil's advocate, and I've come to make a claim this morning, and this claim is that Jesus is Lord. And I want to see if I can not present some compelling evidence to believe that. I believe this morning that I can take this sermon and work backward from it, and I can give you appealing evidence that that is true, even evidence that the most intellectual of you could believe. The first reason why this gospel is believable, and I can believe it, is because of the life that he lived. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God, had, which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. He's saying that, that Jesus' life was attested to by God with miracles and wonders and signs. He's saying God has done something in your midst and you know it to be true. And what he did in your midst in the life of Jesus can be substantiated by his life, by these miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, I'm not uh, so, uh, you know, inclined to believe that anybody here or listening to me would believe in Jesus simply because of the life he lived. But it is one block that should go into the foundation of a believable faith. Notice the things that characterized his life. Miracles. Now that's a word that means dynamically powerful events, wonders. That word re refers to the response of the people to these remarkable things they saw that resulted in their response. That's wonders. Signs is a word that refers to the significance of these things, these wonders and signs, these wonders and miracles that they saw. Let me see if I can illustrate like this. Jesus healed a blind man. That's the miracle. And the people said, wow, that's the wonder. And the sign is the significance of that. Jesus is saying, that's nothing. The reason I healed that man and gave him sight was because I am the light of the world. You need to know that. Jesus fed 5,000, and the people went, ooh, ah, that's the wonder. Jesus said, that's nothing, I'm the bread of life. And Jesus raised the dead, and the people went, wow, and Jesus said, that's nothing, I am the resurrection and the life. And there were these things that surrounded his life that were remarkable and profound and dynamic and awe-inspiring, and they had significance at every point. Now, when these people who were seven days removed from his life were faced with this evidence, they didn't say, I don't really believe that Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Somebody must have had a big carryout. And when they confronted the evidence of a man being, born, being healed of blindness, they didn't say, 
Oh, I don't really believe that. It was another man they presented, not the person who had been blind. And when they heard that he walked on water, they didn't say, couldn't happen, because there must have been a reef underneath the surface of the water that nobody could see. For when they were confronted with the evidence, they, uh, they accepted the evidence at face value. Now we're 2,000 years removed from that. And we have a hard time accepting things at face value. And the average man on the street, when you confront him with the evidence like this, might not really accept it as at face value because we have our presuppositions. Our presupposition is that miracles don't happen. For our presupposition is miracles can't happen. So if you have a presupposition that miracles don't happen because miracles can't happen, and you turn to the Bible and it says miracles happen, you have only one alternative, and that is to say that the Bible isn't true. They did not do this. For when Simon Peter stood up and presented the evidence, he said, you yourselves know it to be true. It's undeniable and incontrovertible. I want you to take that stone and add it to the foundation of belief. No, there's more. This is believable because of the prophecies he fulfilled. Now when you read back through this sermon, you'll notice that Peter is quoting the Old Testament He's quoting from the book Joel, the prophet. Now he could have gone back to Genesis and he could have quoted for it from any book, but he chose the prophet Joel and said that this is being fulfilled in this very moment. Now people who are able to understand history are brilliant people, in my opinion. There are some folks who know history. They've learned history inside and out. They write history. They teach history. And they make history. I could never teach history. I don't know that much about it. Wasn't that great of a history student, to be honest with you. Couldn't write it because somebody would refute my writing. Don't make much of it, history, any significant history. One historian, one person asked Sir Winston Churchill one time, what do you think, how do you think that posterity will view you? Churchill said, well, I don't know. I'm going to leave that to the historians, but since I'm going to write the history myself, I have no qualms. Now, I can't write history, and I'm not making any, and I'm certainly not going to teach history, because the people who know it and write it and teach it and make it are brilliant. But let me tell you somebody who is more brilliant than the people who write it and teach it. They are the people who predict it. They put it smart. Now you find a person who can predict history and it comes to pass, get his name because he's pretty intelligent. We call them prophets. And the Bible is full of them. And these prophets came along and they began to predict history. And they piled one prophecy of history on top of another, on top of another, until they reached the heavens. 
And then along came Jesus and fulfilled every one of them. Bang, bang, bang. Now do you know what the chances are that a person, one person, could fulfill all the prophecies of history that are made about him? You know what the chances of that are ha- of happening are? Somebody said one in ten raised to the 84th power, which means that the chances of this person fulfilling all of these prophecies are one in ten multiplied by itself 84 times. Now let me give you a prophecy. Somebody's coming to see you tonight. That's a prophecy. Uh, let me add this. That person who's coming to see you tonight will come exactly at midnight, not a second before, not a second after. That person who comes to see you tonight at midnight will be named Ludwig. That person who is coming to see you tonight at midnight, named Ludwig, is a male. And that person who is coming to see you tonight, who is a male, named Ludwig, coming exactly at midnight, stands six six foot, six inches tall, exactly. That male named Ludwig, who's coming to see you tonight, exactly at midnight, standing six foot, six inches tall, will weigh 220 pounds, not an ounce more, not an ounce less. And that male named Ludwig, there's an end to this, that male named Ludwig, who's coming to see you at midnight, standing six foot, six inches tall, weighs 220 pounds, will have have a carrot sticking out of one ear and a cucumber sticking out the other. You believe that? Now, if I said to you this morning that somebody is coming to see you and that's all, that, the chances of that are happening are enormous. I mean, especially if you live in the dorm, right? But if I start stacking on top of, one on top of the other these other things, it narrows the chances of that happening down to zero. Now, here come these prophets these brilliant men of history, and they began to predict it, and they added one on top of the other, on top of the other, and then along came Jesus. Bang, bang, bang. He fulfilled every one of them. Add that brick to the foundation. And that's not all. Look at verse 23. Not only is this believable because of the life he lived and the prophecies he fulfilled, But because of the death he died, look at this, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now the interesting thing about this death he died, life he lived, prophecies he fulfilled, death he died. The interesting thing about the death he died was that it had, it, was both, it had both a human and a divine side. He was delivered up in a predetermined plan by God Himself. That's the divine side. And He was nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. That is the human side. So that the death of Jesus, this strange death, was both human and divine. 
Now when you look at this strange death he died, you want to ask yourself, what do I see here? What do I see about this? Now there's something that happened to Jesus prior to his death that shed some light for us. Watch this. Shortly before his death, two ancient men came to talk to him. It happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that, don't you? This is yes. On the Mount of Transfiguration, two ancient men by the name of Moses and Elijah came and talked to Jesus, and he was transfigured in the presence of some of his disciples. Have you you ever wondered what they talked about? Well, the ninth chapter of the book of Luke tells us what they talked about. And Luke says that they came and they talked to Jesus about the departure he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Interesting. About the departure he would accomplish in Jerusalem. The interesting thing about that statement from the ninth chapter of Luke is that that word departure there is the word from which we get the word exodus. Exodus. Now every Jew who was present there that day at Pentecost knew about the Exodus. Every one of them. They knew that there was a day when the Jews thundered out of Egypt and nothing could stop them. Not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian army, not the Red Sea, nothing. They accomplished the Exodus. And this marvelous phenomenon which is at the heart of Jewish theology. This exodus is what they talked about, that Jesus would accomplish an exodus at Calvary. Now what Luke is saying is this, that Jesus didn't just merely die at Calvary, he accomplished an exodus. Now you ask, is there any evidence of that? And there is. For when you begin to look at the death of Jesus, something happened on the cross. The scripture says that at a point of time, Jesus cried, I thirst, and they offered him this drink. Now this drink was a concoction of mind-altering drugs. It was a a drug that was to dull their mind and, and, and dull the pain. And Jesus refused it, this mind-altering drug. And he was thinking to himself, I think, I'm fulfilling prophecy. I've got to keep my mind clear. I'm fulfilling prophecy. I'm fulfilling prophecy. And he turned to his mother, and he put her in charge of the beloved. And then he turned to the repentant thief and said, This day you'll be with me in paradise. Then he shouted, It is finished! And he said to his spirit, you may go now. You get that? He said to his spirit, you may go now. And he died. And so remarkable was his death, and so unusual was it, that a professional executor who spent his life crucifying people, who stood there and watched this strange death muttered, this is the Son of God. Add that stone to the foundation. 
And that's not all. Look at verse 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Now I asked some in the early service, how many of you have a translation that has but God raised him? Lift your hands. You got that? Oh, many of you do. Is that the NIV? But God raised him. Um, G. Campbell Morgan calls this the most glorious word in the human language, but. And, and he talks about the fact that things are going in one direction, but God intervenes. And he, he describes all of these experiences in Scripture where that's true. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about we are dead in trespasses and sin, but God who is rich in mercy. You see that? And there was a preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who pastored preached at the Westminster Chapel in London, England. He has these huge commentaries. He, he, I have a co his commentary on the book of Ephesians. It's a four-set commentary of sermons he preached. He preached two years on the second chapter of Ephesians alone. He preached through the book of Romans, and he preached literally for months. Now you think I repeat. He preached for months on the one phrase, but God, but God raised him. Now, it's time for you to put on the sandals now, just a moment. And I want you to be that group that is there. And I want you to notice what is happening. And, and you're probably saying, well now come on Peter, dead people don't rise. But if you had lived in that day, the, the newspaper headlines and the Jerusalem morning news would have blared it. Tomb is empty. Body of Jesus disappears. Sightings of the body of the, of the body of Jesus are made and confirmed. And the CNN news would have run it every 30 minutes. Body of Jesus seen. Man Jesus crucified and buried, seen alive over and over again. And what about this Peter? He's this guy that, that coined the phrase, don't just stand there, say something. I mean, he, he was always tempestuous. He's the guy, you remember him? He's the guy that grabbed the sword, was going to defend Jesus in the garden, took a swipe at Malchus and cut off his ear. He wasn't hitting for his ear. He was headed for that seam that went right down the center of that Roman soldier's helmet, the weak spot, and he, he, he wielded that sword like a fisherman. He intended to cut him in half. Mal over here and cuss over here. And this guy stands up before more than 5,000 people and says, you are murderers and you're not only guilty of homicide, you're guilty of deicide. You crucified the Son of God himself. What happened to this guy? Evidently he believed that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what are you going to do about these sightings? Well, you say, well, I got that figured out. That's an hallucination. Oh, yeah, it could be, except. Doesn't it seem strange that not just one person had that hallucination, but ten had it at the same time, and then eleven, and five hundred, 
had the same hallucination. Hard for me to believe it was a hallucination. You say, oh, I know what it is. It's a wish fulfillment. It's like when you wish for something so badly that you just think it comes to pass. Uh-uh. There wasn't a single person there that wished that Jesus would suddenly appear in their midst again. They would have been ashamed because they had run, they had fled. They wished that he had never been crucified, but they certainly wasn't wishing he'd show up. All you say, I got it figured out. He, not, he wasn't really dead. You know what it means to scourge somebody? It's what the Jews call the near death, and they scourged him to the near death twice. And they put him in a tomb. You say, well, I don't know how it happened. He slipped out. How did he get out? Through a crack. No, it's sealed. There was a guard there. Well, I know what happened. Somebody stole his body. His disciples did it. They stole his body. That doesn't make sense. Would you go out and tell a lie, something you knew was a lie, and be martyred because of it? Would you give yourself as a martyr for something you knew was a lie? Well, the Jews stole his body. Oh, really? Well, thousands of Jews were being converted to Christianity, even priests. And the only way they could have, dis the best way they could have dispelled the rumor was what? Present the body. There is an alternative. Listen to what I've heard him say. Destroy this body and three days later. Destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise it up again. And he wasn't talking about the temple they worshipped. He was talking about this body. And along comes the Apostle Paul and he says, God has declared him the Son of God by power in the resurrection from the dead. And he says in that glorious 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then it doesn't matter what kind of life he lived. And it doesn't matter that he fulfilled prophecy. And it doesn't matter that he died this kind of unusual death. But he is risen from the dead and we have seen him. Now you think that's all, but it is. Listen to this. Before Peter preached this sermon, there were, this, there were these strange things happening. The sound of mighty rushing wind, cloven tongues of fire on people's heads, and men standing and speaking in the language that everybody there from foreign countries could understand. And what Simon Peter was saying is this. Watch this. Look around you, man. Look around you and see the evidence around you. Irrefutable, incontrovertible, undeniable, power, men on fire. And you see people and hear people speaking in a language they've never used before, language of love. Look around you, man. How can you deny the evidence that is before your eyes? And what happened was, is that when they, listen to this, when they heard it, conclusion, they were pierced to the heart. This gospel cut through their barriers of unbelief like a hot knife 
in butter. This gospel broke down their barriers of rebellion and rejection like a battering ram until they cried like Thomas cried, my Lord and my God, my Kurios and my Adonai. How could you not believe it? Add that to the foundation. And I gave an invitation in the early service, and a little boy believed it. It's easier, perhaps, for little boys than big boys. But is this not compelling evidence to believe? Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would pierce our hearts with the gospel until Jesus is both Lord and Christ, both the one in whom rests all authority, the incarnation of the living God. For I pray it in his name, for his sake. There are three invitations. Look here. We give an invitation for those of you who have never confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Doesn't help to be good. Doesn't matter to be a church member. Have you come confronting the evidence to a decision that he is the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you given your heart to him? Maybe you need to come this morning because he's Lord to place your life in church and the discipline of a church or to rededicate yourself to Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.